know, Israel was very prosperous when it was first overthrown by the Assyrians. Now that's fascinating. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hembry. And I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV. As we go from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, we read through the 66 books of the Bible. Very, very interesting. I'm going to talk about Isaiah 28 in about five minutes, but Corey and Ryan are here. Corey? I'm going to take a look at Isaiah chapter 29 and siege warfare. Ryan? Well, I have a really interesting question for us today, and it's this. How could a good God, a God of peace, according to the book of Hebrews, condone and even employ warfare? All right. That's a very good question. They're coming up in 20 minutes time. Janice? It's our Friday wrap-up question of the week. I'm going to ask a question anywhere from Isaiah chapter 9 through chapter 28. All right, take your Bible guide and let's turn to the place where we study today and look at what God is saying to us from his word. Isaiah 28, 1 through 13. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower which is at the head of the verdant valleys to those who are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. The crown of pride the drunkards of Ephraim will be trampled underfoot. And the glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valley, like the first fruit before the summer, which an observer sees. He eats it up while it is still in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, for a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. But they also have erred through wine, and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine, they are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. Whom will he teach knowledge? And whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just drawn from the breasts? For precept must be upon precept precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue he will speak to this people, to whom he said, This is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing. Yet they would not hear. But the word of the Lord was to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. 
that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. Isaiah chapter 28, verses 1 through 13. Isaiah chapter 28 and chapter 29. That's what we read today. We continue to go through the Bible. Very, very exciting, I'll tell you. Now, when Israel split into two countries, they embarked on different paths and under different leaders. The 10 tribes to the north kept the name Israel and rejected the house of David as their kings. What do we have to do with David? They walked away. But the two tribes to the south became known as Judah, and the descendants of David were always their kings. Judah also had the capital city of Jerusalem, where the temple was, and so they inherited many of the Levitical priests with the idea that they should remain loyal to the worship of the God Almighty. In northern Israel, however, the worship of God was replaced with two official high places and idols in the name of God. Despite the multiple prophets of God, the people and the kings of Israel, they remained rebellious. So by 722 BC, God had enough of the Israelites. He brought the Assyrians to devastate their political structure and Israel was no more. The prophet Isaiah brought the message of impending destruction to Israel, and he would even see it fulfilled during his lifetime. His description of Israel's apostasy was very clear, and its destruction would have been extremely concerning to the smaller southern Judah. Let me tell you. Boy, this is a very, very important time. Take your Bible guide, turn to today's page. I want to encourage you, if you don't have one, to write for yours or call for yours. We'll send it to you. We'd love to do that. Another way you can get a hold of the Bible Guide is to go to Bible Discovery TV, one word, BibleDiscoveryTV.com, and click on the Bible Guide there. It takes you to a donate page. And may I say thank you so much for your donations. We very much appreciate it. That's how we live here. So thank you for that. Keeps us coming to you each and every day. And it takes you to a page where you can download it exactly how we printed it and designed it so you can have it on your computer forever. As long as you are alive, you can study the Bible with us. And so I encourage you to do that. That's very important. Today, from the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the presence of God. What in the world is that? We have to pray about this. Father, today I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would come into our hearts and help us to hear the word of God and what it says as we listen today. Help us to understand the devastation of these scriptures of where we're at in time. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. And we said together, amen and amen. With that in mind, let's focus on the scripture and let's go to the passage and learn what God says. Here's what it says, Isaiah chapter 28, verses 1 to 4. Woe to the crown of pride. Boy, look at that. Woe to the crown of pride. To the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is fading, a fading flower, which is at the head of the burdened valleys. To those who are overcome with wine, 
Behold, the Lord has a mighty and a strong one, like a tempest of hail and destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. The crown of pride, the drunkenness of Ephraim, will be trampled underfoot, and the glorious beauty is fading, a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valley like the first fruit before the summer, which is an observer sees. He eats it up while it is still in his hand. What is Isaiah talking about? Well, Israel was very prosperous when they were overthrown. Beloved, sometimes prosperity can be our greatest weakness, not our strength. Sometimes our greatest weakness. You know, I just need to say that... Uh, when we take pride in our success, that's when pride is a problem. We don't take pride in our success. We come before God and say, thank you, Lord, for helping us. That's what we do. Isaiah 28, 5 to 6. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, the, the people who have stayed with him for a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. In times of distress, it is in God that we should rest. In times of distress, it is in God that we should rest. We cannot solve our problems by ourselves. We need the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts. Bottom line. We cannot solve the problems ourselves. So we come to pray, and that's what we do every other day. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 3.30 to 4.30 Eastern Time in the United States. We come on the air on Facebook, on YouTube, on Bible Discovery TV live, and we pray. We have to come to God. We pray together. And that becomes very important because in great times of distress, we must pray and rest in the provision of God as we have come into the obedience of the Lord. Very important. All right, 7 through 13, watch this. But they also have erred through wine and through the intoxicating drink. They're out of the way. The priests and the prophets have erred through intoxicating drink. What? The priest and the prophets have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For the tables of the are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. Who or whom will he teach knowledge? And whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just drawn from the breast? For precept must be on precept, precept on precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to his people, to whom he, is, he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear it. But the word of the Lord was to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, 
that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. The spiritual leaders were just as guilty of drunkenness as the people who followed them. God speaks to us through his word every day of our life. We should listen. Beloved, listen to me. I wish that I could say to you, go to some place and hear somebody speak on the Bible, but I can't. Because our leaders, many of our leaders have fallen. There are several who have not. Praise God, they still speak the Bible. But many leaders have wandered away from the word of God. And we have a, a, a tremendous error, line upon line, precept upon precept. Beloved, we must read the Bible and know what God says to us. Hi, Rod Hember here. We go through the Bible every year from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Now you can join us and watch at the time you like by searching Bible Discovery TV on the Roku box or on Amazon Fire TV. Anytime you want to watch us, we're there. Get a hold of it. Watch us anytime you want to. Isaiah delivered what would have been an absolutely terrifying message in Isaiah chapter 29. And when you understand the historical context to this message, it really still, I find it very terrifying. It kind of takes my breath away, to be honest. Uh, and, and it has to do with God setting a siege around Jerusalem. To understand this, first we have to understand what siege warfare was and why it was so utilized and so feared in the ancient world. Take a look. From very early times, people have found it necessary to build walls around their living spaces. For cities, these protective fortifications could be quite elaborate, including double wall systems with steep space between to provide a defensive advantage, moats, towers, complex gate structures, and thick wooden metal-covered doors. But just as people worked to fortify their cities, others worked to find ways of destroying them. There were several ways of trying to compromise fortifications, but none was so dreaded than the most obvious, a siege. When an army would attack a walled city, they knew that this battle could last for years, and so it was an expensive, logistically challenging, physically, mentally draining process. A siege essentially imprisoned the citizens of a walled city, giving them two choices, surrender now or face thirst, starvation, and death. Historically, when an invading army finally did break through the defenses of a walled city, major atrocities were committed. Sometimes years of anger and hatred had developed before the excited frenzy of success, resulting in mass murder, abuse, and at best, enslavement. To imprison the citizens inside of their own walled city, an attacking army would set up a perimeter around the city using ditches and moats and building walls and towers. The army would camp and live around these new fortifications. No one or thing could go to or from the city. With these preparations complete, they would begin attacks against the fortifications themselves. These attacks were varied. Sappers would attempt to collapse walls by digging tunnels underneath using wooden support beams. When they believed they were at the right location, they'd set the support beams on fire to cause the tunnels and hopefully the wall to collapse. 
While the sappers were digging, others would attack the walls at strategic locations using battering rams with blades to pry between brick and stone. Fires could be set against the walls with hopes that the great heat would eventually begin to crack and compromise them. Gates were also attacked with battering rams and fire, though once through a gate, the military would often have to deal with a tight, winding, defensive space and sometimes a secondary gate. Large ladders were also used to simply scale the wall. And while this was a dangerous business, when used altogether, these strategies could be effective in breaching defenses and at least in lowering the resilience of the entrapped citizens. As for defenses, a city was largely reliant on its height advantage. From the wall, they could shoot arrows, throw stones, pour hot liquid, try to set fires, try to dislodge battering rams with chains, but often what would stop a siege was out of the city's control, a contagious sickness in the attacking army, a military emergency elsewhere to draw them away, or that the enemy would have overestimated their economic ability to last. So now that we see what siege warfare actually was, it brings new meaning to Isaiah chapter 29. I, I'm, I'm gonna read you know, verses one to three. Woe to Ariel, Ariel, that's another word for Jerusalem in this case, the city where David settled. Add year to year and let your cycle of festivals go on. Yet I will besiege Ariel and she will mourn and lament. She will be to me like an altar hearth. I will encamp against you on all sides. I will encircle you with towers and set my siege works against you. Brought low, you will speak from the ground. Your speech will mumble out of the dust. Your voice will come ghost-like from the earth. Out of the dust, your speech will whisper. And this judgment was coming on Jerusalem uh, because of their apostasy. And we see, you know, later in verse 13, it says this, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. They were trying to worship God and live their own lives and worship other things as well, going against the covenant. Uh, worship of God has always had to come from a place of reality inside your heart and your spirit, as well as physically. So when they they didn't they didn't personalize the worship of God, it was just an act that they did on the outside. Yeah. So in that way, it's hypocritical. Oh, definitely. Because, you know, you, it's very, very, very interesting, Corey. Ryan? All right. Well, today I want to deal with a question that comes up quite a bit as we read the Bible, especially for skeptics and or new readers of the Bible. And that is, how could the God of the Bible, a God the Bible calls good, as well as a God of peace, condone and even employ warfare? Now, on the surface, this may sound contradictory. I mean, a God of peace at war? Well, Actually, God's goodness and peace demand that he be at war, at least for now. Let's study. Both saints and cynics alike have often struggled to understand how the good God of the Bible, a God of peace, could condone warfare and even lay out specific instructions for how wars ought to be fought. Interestingly, Old Testament scholar Gleason Archer responded to this question with a question of his own. He asks, 
Is it really a manifestation of goodness to furnish no opposition to evil? Can we say that a truly good surgeon should do nothing to cut away a cancerous tissue from his patient and simply allow him to go on suffering until he finally dies? Can we praise a police force that stands idly by and offers no resistance to the armed robber, the rapist, the arsonist, or any other criminal who preys on society? How could God be called good if he forbade his people to protect their wives from ravishment and strangulation by drunken marauders, or to resist invaders who have come to pick up their children and dash out their brains against the wall? It's hard to imagine how any deity could be thought good who would ordain such a policy of spiritless surrender to evil as that advocated by pacifism. Such humanitarian protests against our Creator also illustrate the sad fact that many people, including even some believers, don't really know who God is because they do not know His Word. As a result, they have created either a partially or else a totally false image of God. In an ironic twist, they have created God in their own image, and in doing so have actually broken the first two of the Ten Commandments. To be sure, He is a God of peace, as affirmed by the New Testament book of Hebrews. But the Bible also calls him most upright and holy, and as such he cannot tolerate sin. He's also called the judge of all the earth, and the lawgiver. In fact, he's even referred to as a warrior in Exodus chapter 15 verse 3. Thus his character demands that he must judge and conquer evil, for there can be no real peace in the midst of evil and suffering. In another sad twist, many believe that God is the one responsible for evil and suffering. This is the natural conclusion that flows from the popular belief that creation came about through evolutionary processes, where life arises through death. According to evolution, death, suffering, and evil have always existed. However, in direct contrast, the Bible teaches that God created everything perfect, but man rebelled against God, which brought these evils in. So God is not responsible for evil. We are. Nevertheless, God, in His grace, has been working to bring all of creation back to its original perfect state. And that's why the God of peace is at war with all evil. Alright, so notice that there are three points that we considered here. The first was, could a good God really allow evil to go unchallenged? And the answer to that is an obvious no. Secondly, a lot of people don't really know who God really is because they don't know His Word, the Bible. And we fashioned a God out of our own making in our minds, but we need to know the God of the Bible. That's part of the reason reading and studying God's Word is so important. And lastly, because we live in a sin-cursed world, God must bring all evil into subjection. He is at war with evil because He's working to restore creation to its perfect state. Also very important to understand is that God is not the author of that evil. The, that false idea comes from an improper worldview, namely evolution. But the Bible teaches that evil entered in as a result of our disobedience to God. Nevertheless, God, in His magnificent and unmatchable grace, gave Himself for us in the person of Jesus Christ and offers you eternal life in a new heavens and a new earth, just like it was in the beginning. So the question is, will you accept his offer of salvation? Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So make him Lord today and you too will be a part of that glorious future.
I think it's important to call out the name of Jesus. He's as close as the mention of his name, and he will respond to you. Call out Jesus and say, Jesus, I need your help today. I'm a sinner and I need your help. I can't do it without you. You died on the cross and you rose again, and I need you in my life. Be my Lord. Amen. Very good. Corey, what did you do on the weekend? Oh, well, we, me and Matlock, we do a weekend show every week that we release. And we talk about questions that pop up as we're reading through the scriptures. And we also take viewer questions as well. So if you're interested in that, just check out uh, my YouTube channel, which is my name, Corey Babechko. And I also do uh, about a 10 minute chapter by chapter recap in case you've fallen behind on your reading. So you can also find that on the YouTube channel. And we also have that on our live channel called BD Family and Friends on the website and also on the Roku channel or on the Fire Stick or whatever you want. There's several ways you can get it. Uh, all right, Janice, this is the big question. It's the big question. $10,000 question. No. Which we don't have. It's a so. free question. <laughs> it's free a free and you just okay. gain more knowledge. <laughs> Priceless. Priceless wisdom. Priceless wisdom. Priceless there you go. All right. <laughs> so this is anywhere from Isaiah chapter 9 all the way through to 28. So here's the question. It's a finish the verse. Okay. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty, Ga Mighty God, <laughs> sorry, Everlasting Father, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, or Prince of Peace. You and his name, his name go ahead. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, or Prince of Peace. You guys are acting like you have this down. Well, we're we're pretty confident on this. We're pretty All confident, right. yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We've been to many a Christmas. <laughs> what about you? What about you watching? Are you confident on this? I think you should be. Okay, Janice, go ahead. Well, they have to answer first. Oh, go ahead. Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace, number three. Prince of Peace. And of course, he is the Lord of Lords. He is. He yes. is the King of Kings. Yes. But true. here is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Very good. Excellent. So that's something you should remember because you got the question right. And I'm assuming that everybody did. So good verse to memorize. Yes, it is. Thank you for that. That's an easy question. Thank you for the easy question. That's very <laughs> important, especially when you answer, you know, Bible IQ questions. Okay, let's continue to study. South America is a great place and we need to pray for Brazil. Uh, this is a, an amazing country that's under a lot of stress for a lot of reasons. And Father, we pray for Brazil, the people there. Pray that you would touch them and fill them with your spirit and help them, oh God, to have an awareness of who you are. 
Father, Brazil is a place where you can be glorified in many ways and touch them, Lord. This is what we pray. The church is there and everything there. Help them, Lord, in Jesus' name. And we said together, amen.